Right, well we continue in uh, Matthew and uh, we're up to chapter 14 and um, remember we, we saw last time we're in the, the two year period where Jesus was uh, travelling in Galilee which was the, the northern part of um, Israel and um, we, we, we saw last time as well in chapter 12 the very key point when Israel the leaders blasphemed the Holy Spirit and knowing that Jesus was their Messiah, knowing that Jesus was God become man and that Jesus had proved this to them, not just by uh, the Old Testament but by all the uh, traditions and teachings that they had developed which were nothing to do with the Old Testament. On both counts Jesus had proven that he was the Messiah and that even knowing that the leaders nevertheless accused him of being from Satan. And this is when Israel had, as Jesus phrased it, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so, as it were, the sword of God's judgment has now come down on Israel. And, uh, and what we see is that Israel now, having rejected Jesus, God now rejects Israel. And of course, from this point onwards, is going to replace Israel with the church. Obviously, in the future, when the church has gone, Israel will be grafted back in. So Israel, as God's people, will be back again in the future but we've seen that point when God's judgment has come down on Israel and now it's going to be the case and nothing can avoid it that Israel has been as it were cut out of the vine and the Gentile church is going to be grafted in in its place and of course what happened in AD 70 is that the Romans came in and destroyed Israel virtually completely and we've seen that Jesus now has changed the mode in which he's uh, carrying out his ministry and he's gone from working overt signs and wonders proving to Israel who he was and now he's gone to teaching in parables uh, getting a little bit obscure and only explaining the parables to people who actually come up face to face and ask him about them and uh, so now we um, come into chapter 14 and uh, this is where Matthew tells us um, a bit about Herod uh, John the Baptist has been put to death by Herod and uh, you'll remember what happened was that Herod had married Herodias who was his brother-in-law's wife this was a completely wrong and illegal and immoral marriage and John the Baptist had spoken <coughs> out against it he had denounced it um, Herod was the you know like the, at the time the king of the Jews and according to Jewish law such a marriage should never have happened John the Baptist had uh, spoken out against it and uh, you'll remember that Herod as a result of that had put him in jail but um, what happened Herod didn't want to kill him at all so he was frightened of him but you'll remember that, that there was the occasion because Herodias hated John the Baptist and there was the occasion when her daughter Salome uh, was at a feast and she was sort of doing the old voluptuous dancing and that and Herod got so carried away and he said you know anything you like Salome and Herodias her mum got her to one side and said this is this is what you must ask for and so Salome went to Herod and said I want John the Baptist's head on a platter and uh, so Herod then because he'd given his word in front of all his courtiers and things like that had no choice and therefore John the Baptist had been beheaded and at this point uh, in the ministry of Jesus because uh, you know John had been uh, you know had his head chopped off quite a, a while before this but Herod now begins to wonder whether Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead because all Jesus's miracles and you know and sort of Herod is definitely starting to get worried now 
as uh, well he might. Uh, he comes back into the story, as you all know, a bit later on. And um, But at this point, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So we have the 5,000. Well, it was just the men, actually. You know, there'd have been far more than that because the women and children were there too. But uh, Israel, when it numbered, it tended to Israel, just the men. So the feeding of the 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fishes. Um, so obviously that was a very significant sign um, from Jesus there. But of course he did it primarily simply because people were hungry, just, just, just to meet a need. Uh, then we have the incidents when um, he put the disciples in a boat and, and he sent them across the lake of Galilee and Jesus went off to pray. And, um, and you remember that the, the storm came up and, uh, and the disciples were really frightened and Jesus walked to them on the water. And they were really fearful, you know, sort of like, you know, didn't know what was happening. And uh, that was when Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call me to you. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water with Jesus until he looked away. And then, of course, he, he, he sank. So there's that very, you know, and, and then once they, you know, it was all over, they, they were at the shore and safe again. And uh, so, so there you've got the walking on the water. Now, in chapter 15, we have um, a major clash with uh, Jesus. Um, and the Pharisees over the tradition of the elders. Now, we saw this last time. These aren't the laws in the Old Testament. These were all the extra laws that the Pharisees had come up with that were nothing to do with the Old Testament at all. But they might, you know, made them binding. <coughs> and uh, this was actually, you know, sort of, um, you know, kind of a, a, a clash over hand washings. The Pharisees had elaborate rituals for hand washing before they ate. It was nothing to do with the Old Testament, but they made this binding on people ceremonially. And of course, Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself didn't observe any of it because, I mean, it wasn't of the Lord. And uh, so the Pharisees kind of challenged Jesus on this. Remember, they were, you know, had all their appointed men who, because Jesus had worked the messianic miracles, like casting out demons who rendered people dumb and healing of a leper, that this meant that they had to, you know, kind of shadow him, uh, you know, to, to make all the investigations, is he really the Messiah, you know, and, and all that. And so in the context of this, they, they had loads and loads of questions to ask him. And uh, on this occasion, they, you know, sort of choose the hand-washing thing. And Jesus said to them, and this is important, he said, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And of course, that's the point. When man's tradition uh, gets in the way of God's tradition, you've got a conflict. And if you go with what man teaches, you're in, um, in conflict with what God has teaching, uh, taught in the Bible. And, um, and Jesus gives them the example of how it is that they were using all these laws. And they had a law that was called Carbang. And what you could do is that if you had, uh, you know, sort of like various money and things like that, you could, like, you know, commit it to the temple. So it was tied up, it was given to God. Uh, you could get at this money later on. But what they were doing, um, in order to avoid having to tie up their money, maybe to look after their aged parents, they tie up their money in Corban until their parents were dead, and then they get their money back. And this was the kind of flagrant use of these laws that they were making, almost like technicalities to get around the spirit of the actual Old Testament law. And obviously, you know, according to that, you've got to uh, look after your parents. And so having given that example to them, Jesus says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your, of your tradition. And then he says, you hypocrites. And, and here we see this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Not a conflict based on the Old Testament. On the Old Testament, they were agreed. This was the conflict between Jesus and all these traditions that they come up with, that they called the tradition of the elders. Um, and then Jesus quotes Isaiah 
um, in a passage about how you know sort of God's people were honouring him with their lips, but their their hearts were were, were far from them. And um, and at this point, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, because they'd said, look, if you if you don't wash, you might have things on your hand that are unclean, and then you're unclean. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth. I because how what what we say, our speech life gives away what's in our heart. Now at this point, the disciples pull Jesus to one side, and uh, they 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 tell him that that he defended the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were hopping mad when Jesus said things like this to them. I mean, they didn't like being called hypocrites for a start, and the disciples say, Jesus, you've upset the Pharisees. Now wise men did not upset the Pharisees. All right, and the disciples said, Jesus, you've upset the Pharisees. You've offended them. And Jesus said to them, he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. Now Jesus was supposed to say, oh yeah, sorry, I've upset them, I'd better do a big PR job here. No, Jesus wasn't having any of it. The disciples say, you've upset them. And Jesus said, they're not of the Lord, they're not of God, they're hypocrites. Leave them alone, stay out of their way. And he then goes on to explain that it's what you say. He elaborates on what he said about what comes out of, out of the heart. And, and he says that in the heart there's murder, adultery, theft, and he gives a long <coughs> list of sin. He's saying that's in the heart, that's internal. And he says it's not a point, all this ceremonial stuff, it does nothing. That's not what true righteousness is. True righteousness is what's in our hearts, and only God can put righteousness in our hearts. Um, then he moves on to Tyre and Sidon, um, famous towns from the Old Testament, and uh, just, just outside of uh, Israel now. So he's popped outside of the land and he's gone into Canaanite, you know, sort of like, you know, Canaanite territory here. And um, a Canaanite woman approached him who had a demonized daughter. And uh, J- Jesus spoke the word. And even though this girl wasn't there, the demon left her. Because when the mum went home, you know, sort of like she found that her daughter was absolutely fine. But when when she came to Jesus, because remember, she's a Gentile, she's not a Jew. And um, when she initially came to Jesus, you remember Jesus said to her, look, I, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Because the, the, the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, like. And Jesus was testing her here. And, uh, and of course, what happened was that she came back to him and she kept going. She wasn't going to take no for an answer, you see. And what she said is, said, look, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And, uh, you know, so she's basically saying to Jesus, help me, you're the Messiah. He says, oh, no, 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 I've, I've come for Israel, not the Gentiles. And she's saying, no, you haven't, Lord, I know you haven't, I need your help. And, and that, that's faith, isn't it? It's sort of not, not letting go of God. And, of course, part of what you've got here is Jesus demonstrating, through setting her daughter free, this woman is a Canaanite, she is receiving, as a Gentile, what Israel is rejecting. And, of course, you've got a little sign here, the way that Israel is going to be rejected and the Gentiles um, are going to uh, sort of, like, step, uh, you know, sort of take their place. And uh, so this woman, basically, she's arguing with Jesus, but in the right way. She won't take no for an answer. And Jesus is testing her by making out, no, I'm not going to answer your prayer, you're a Gentile. And she says, oh, yes, you are, Lord. That, that's faith. That, that, that's faith. And so Jesus is always delighted. And, of course, again and again, Jesus found more faith 
amongst the Gentiles than, than he did amongst the Jews, his own people. Um, after that, you get the feeding of the 4,000. So, so now Jesus has ended up with a, a slightly less numerous crowd, but again, they're hungry, so he feeds them miraculously. And whereas when he fed the 5,000, it was with five loaves and two fishes, Matthew tells us here that this feeding of the 4,000, this was by the Sea of Galilee, was with seven loaves and a few fishes. So we don't know how many fishes it was. And um, after that, Jesus sends the crowd away. So we've seen him zap over the Tyre and Sidon. Now he's come back to Galilee, you know, and sort of like the feeding of the 4,000. And now he, he heads around the lake a bit and he goes to a place called Magadan. Now this place gets called different things by different people. Um, in Mark's Gospel, um, it's, it's called Dalmanutha. You know, in the same way that different people using different languages call different places different, you know, by different names. And it's also known as Magdala, and that's where Mary Magdalene came from. So when you get Magadan, Magdala, Dalmanutha, according to which Gospel you're reading, they're just different variations on the same basic name of this place. And uh, so, so that's where he, he sort of heads to and um, he, he, he goes down there for a while. Now, chapter 16 uh, shows us again um, Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees, and, and they're demanding a sign. Keep saying, look, give us a sign. Give us a sign telling us what right you have to do all these things. And of course, the point is, Jesus has proven to them again and again by the Old Testament and according to their own teaching, by working all these miracles. I mean, how many more signs do they want? And of course, the point is, it doesn't matter what miracle Jesus works. They just turn around and say, oh, he does it by the power of the devil. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's crazy that they keep saying, give us a sign. But once again, uh, Jesus repeats the Jonah thing. He says, no, the only sign you're getting from me is the sign of Jonah in the Old Testament. Of course, the point is, what Jesus was saying, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus would be in the centre of the earth in paradise when he died for three days and three nights and then he would be raised again from the dead in the same way that the you know the whale spat Jonah out um, on the beach because death cannot hold Jesus and so again what he's saying is that the next sign that you're going to get is going to be the fact that after you've murdered me I'm going to be raised again from the dead that's the next sign that you're going to get and then Jesus turns to the disciples you know, he'll get the Pharisee, because the Pharisees, their questions weren't genuine. You know, there was no sincerity in their hearts. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he warns them against the yeast of the Pharisees. And whenever Jesus spoke to the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees, he was always talking about their hypocrisy. And of course, the point is with yeast is you only need a little bit of yeast and it affects a massive batch of dough in the bread. And what Jesus is saying the danger of hypocrisy is that you only need a little bit and it spreads ever such a long way. And, and you, you can see in the Pharisees how far away they were from the Lord because of this little bit of hypocrisy in their hearts. And of course the thing is that when you get a little bit of hypocrisy, if you don't deal with that in your life, it grows, it spreads, it affects everything. And so Jesus says, look, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because hypocrisy, a little goes an awful long way. And he then asks them, the, the famous occasion, he says, who do men say that I am? And he says to the disciples, come on, 
who are they saying that I am? And, and of course the disciples say, well, some are saying you're John the Baptist, others are saying you're Elijah, and you know, this, this, that, and the other. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? You know, and of course this was when Peter, straight in there, you know, sort of like Peter, always the spokesman, always first in, and it was a lovely trait. He, he was absolutely genuine. And he, he, he was straight in and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, um, you know, and Jesus said, well, this is marvellous because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And it's then that Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And of course, the rock on which Jesus builds his church, his church is himself. The point is that Peter is saying, um, you know, you are the Messiah. You are God become man. You are the saviour of the world. And that's the foundation on which the church is built, knowing that Jesus is saviour, knowing that Jesus is God himself. And, um, and at this point, Jesus then quite blatantly predicts his death. And he tells the disciples that um, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Now Peter, straight back in there again, and, and, and he says, no, Lord, we'll never let that happen. Don't, don't, don't say such things, Lord. We'll make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, here's Peter just going too far because it's for the death that Jesus came. Jesus came to die so that we could be saved. That's why he came. Now, here's Peter. Oh, no, Lord, no, don't you worry. We'll take care of it. You'll be safe with us. And this is when Jesus turns to Peter. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. And of course, what you see here is that a couple of minutes ago, Peter has said, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, fantastic. That's of the Holy Spirit, that you know that. And then two minutes later, Peter's saying, oh, we'll make sure you don't die, Lord. And Jesus says, no, get thee behind me, Satan. For these are the thoughts of men and not God. And that shows us all. We can go with the Holy Spirit. We can go with the Lord and his way. But of course, the point is, the way of death be it death on the cross or be it death to self in our daily lives. There's the other part of us, just like Peter, that veers away from that. Oh, no, 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 no suffering and death. And of course, what Peter was saying, in saying no suffering and death for you, Lord, what he's saying is, oh, then we won't have to suffer and die. But of course, if we follow Jesus, that death to self, that's, that's going to be there. There's a, a price for following Jesus. And so here you have, you know, like Jesus indicating to Peter, the two halves of him, it's the same with all of us, the new nature, because he was following Jesus, and yet that old nature that Satan produced was, was still there. Right, chapter 17, now we have the transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And uh, they're there, and Jesus is transfigured. And of course, what's happening here is they see Jesus in all his glory as God become man. So the, the glory of Jesus, because even though he become man, he was still God, the second person of the Trinity. Normally that, as it were, was, was pushed to one side, but now it flashes through and they see Jesus in all his glory, transfigured, all right. And, um, you know, and I mean, the disciples were a bit awed about this, and um, also, there was Moses and Elijah appeared as well. Moses representing the law, Elijah the prophets, right? So you've got a whole of the kind of Old Testament era symbolised here. And, uh, I mean, Peter, you know, sort of like often last to think but first to talk, um, you know, says, well, okay, Lord, we'll, we'll build some little huts and 
one, one for you and one for Mo. I mean, he's panicking. He doesn't know what, you know. So if in doubt, talk. That was, that was Peter. And, uh, and this voice comes from heaven and God speaks directly to Peter. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And of course, in a very loving but fatherly way, God, God is actually saying, Peter, shut up. Listen to Jesus. It's not your words we want, it's Jesus's. And, um, you know, and, and, and so he, here they just have this vision. And then suddenly, as fast as it happened, Moses and Elijah had gone again and Jesus is, 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 is back to, you know, to his more what you call everyday, non-glorified um, human state. And, um, you know, and, 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 and then Jesus talks to the disciple and, and fills, fills them in a bit about Elijah and, you know, and sort of saying, well, you know, John the Baptist is going to be like the modern day Elijah, you know, and uh, we, we saw that last time, didn't we? You know, the teaching that Jesus gave on why he kept likening John the Baptist to Elijah. Anyway, he comes down from the mountain and the other disciples um, are, are trying to cast a demon out of this boy whose father brought them to him. Now, we know from Mark's Gospel, although we're not told by Matthew, but from Mark's Gospel, his event of, uh, of, or his storytelling of the same story, um, informs us that, that this boy was demonised with a dumb spirit. And, and I think that's why they couldn't cast it out. Because it was messianic. You know, they'd been taught, it wasn't in the Bible, but they'd been taught, tradition of the elders, only Messiah can cast out a, a dumb spirit. Because, of course, the Pharisees taught that in order to cast a demon out, you had to establish communication with it and use its name. Well, dumb demon ain't going to speak to you, is it? So they said only Messiah can cast dumb demons out. So therefore, I think the disciples, they're overawed by this. They'd cast other demons out in the name of Jesus, but this was too much for them. And Jesus tells them off their unbelief. Because there was no need for them to be overawed by it, you know, but they were. And this was when he said, look, faith, faith the size of a grain of mustard seed will move a mountain. So he tells them off for their unbelief. And then he tells them again that he's going to be killed and that on the third day he'll rise again uh, from the dead. From there, they, they, they move off to Capernaum. And um, what happened was, now, the temple there, all right, there were various taxes that had to be paid. Uh, temple taxes and uh, the, the, the guys whose job it was to collect people's temple tax asked the disciple if Jesus pays it and uh, they said yes we, we pay it and they go to Jesus and they said we've just told them that you're going to pay the temple tax and what Jesus says he says well look actually the, the sons are exempt from paying the king's taxes and of course what he's saying is we don't actually have to because we're not subjects, we're sons. Because God was Jesus' father, and the disciples, they were following Jesus. They were children of God as well. So God was their father in the same way that God was our father. And this was a temple tax. And Jesus said, well, actually, no, the sons are exempt from the taxes. But he said, um, so that we don't cause any offence, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay the tax. And, um, and he tells Peter, go, go and catch your fish. He says, go, the first fish you catch, the temple tax will be in the mouth of the fish. And uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter goes off, catches a fish, and uh, there's a four drachma coin in there. And uh, the, the tax was two drachma. So that was Jesus, that was his tax and Peter's. So, you know, Jesus said, have, have this one on me, as it were. Um, chapter 18, um, the disciples uh, ask, Who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They had an ongoing kind of thing. Who's going to be the greatest? Peter, James, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and what Jesus does is he answers their question by he calls a little child to him. He grabs a child from wherever. 
and uh, and he says um, you must become like little children he says they're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the reason they're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is because children aren't concerned with their greatness so that's the point adults are and um, and then he warns about the, the dangers of when adults cause children to fall into sin and obviously the responsibility to, uh, that, that we have towards children. Um, then he tells the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he notices that one's gone missing. So he leaves the 99 and he goes after the missing one and uh, that's, that's the way that Jesus feels about us. If we stray, he comes after us. and. Um, and then he, he gives a teaching saying, look, if your brother sins against you and go to them and, you know, but saying at the end of the day, if there's sin that people won't put right, if, if you know, sort of like, if, if, you know, if the bottom line is that people are continuing in willful sin, that's when he gives the teaching that within the context of the church, there is a discipline that can be brought to bear. And in extreme examples, if people continue in willful sin that is damaging others, then there does come a time to actually put them out of the church to excommunicate them as the, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the phraseology that tends to get used today. And then he, he goes on and he speaks about forgiveness and saying that you've got to forgive your brother 70 times, seven times in one day. Uh, seven was kind of like the, you know the Jews saw it as kind of like a perfect number. So this is Jesus saying that as as often as you're sinned against, that's how many times you must forgive, even in one day. And he tells the parable of the servant who um, owed his master a million pounds, right, a massive massive sum of money, and um, you know, and the servant <coughs> goes to see his master, and the master could have had him thrown in jail, but what happens is. Um, that he's forgiven the debt. Pope says, no, it's all right, I'll let you off, you don't owe me anything, right? Afterwards, this servant then goes out and he remembers someone else who owes him like a fiver, a very small sum of money, and he goes to them, he grabs them around the neck and he says, give me my money, I want my money, right? But when, when, when the master heard that he'd done that, he had the servant thrown into jail. And of course, what Jesus was saying, with everything that we've been forgiven, how can we ever hold unforgiveness in our heart against anyone else? It's like my, the sinfulness that God has forgiven in me is like, like say, a million pounds. Well, the worst thing you could do against me might be a fiver in comparison. How could I ever withhold forgiveness you know, from someone else, no matter what they've done to me, because I know what God has forgiven me? And so that's when Jesus is saying, look, you, know, you, 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 must be, you must forgive people from the heart. The king, the master, could have had that servant thrown into jail, but he didn't, he let him off. But once he found out that he wasn't passing that forgiveness on, then he threw him into jail. And of course, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, look, if you don't forgive uh, the sins of others, then God isn't forgiving your sins. It's as simple as that. So to remain in fellowship with God, we've got to make sure that we are forgiving uh, people who sin against us from our hearts. Now, at this point, Jesus pays a visit to Jerusalem that is recorded in John's Gospel, and only John. So when we get on to John's Gospel, we'll see that. But there's a visit to Jerusalem here that Mark doesn't um, record. So um, now we move on to uh, chapter 19. Um, and we now enter the last six months of Jesus' ministry. All right? So we've had three years. Now we've got the last six months. And Jesus now goes to Perea. Now, Perea, you remember I uh, told you last time, was 
the area known as Transjordan. It was the other side of the Jordan, so it was west of the Jordan, sorry, east of the Jordan. Israel was on the west. This was the land east of the Jordan, and it was where some of the tribes uh, from the Exodus, when they came out of Egypt, a couple of, in fact, two and a half of the tribes settled in that area known as Transjordan, and eventually that area came to be known as Perea. And so now Jesus goes and he spends some time there. Um, and he, he gives teaching on divorce, and he teaches that, um, that divorce is okay for unfaithfulness, so that that is the only reason for divorce, all right? Um, you know, so there's that clause, obviously, if, 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 if someone in a marriage is being unfaithful and is unrepentant about it, then the um, other person is, is able to um, divorce them. Um, then he teaches on uh, eunuchs and, and, and voluntary celibacy, and he, he teaches about the way that some people are called to live celibate lives. Nothing to do with priesthood, the Catholic teaching that priests have to be celibate. Nothing to do with it, but Jesus simply saying that some people, God calls them to celibacy in order, you know, for them to, to spend more time and give more of themselves to the Lord. The Apostle Paul was an example there. But of course, there's no such thing as mandatory celibacy in the kingdom of God. It's a calling that people respond to if they feel that God um, has given them. Thankfully, he didn't call me in that way. Um, then, then some children are brought to Jesus and the disciples, you know, like, try and shoo them away and, and Jesus says no he says well let the little children come to me and he says for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven this is how we know that little children are saved automatically not when they grow up but also little children we don't want to put any ages on it but we know that little children that when, when they die they automatically go to be with Jesus um, then the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and um, and he said, what must I do to um, inherit eternal life? And this was the guy that Jesus said, well, you know, he says, tell me what the commandments were. And, and, and the bloke, he goes through all the commandments that he obeys. Uh, but significantly, he misses out coveting. And Jesus said, well, look, what you must do is uh, sell everything that you've got and give it to the poor. And this guy couldn't do it because that was his problem, coveting, see? And Jesus said, no, that's what it's going to cost you if you're going to follow me, this coveting. Now, sell everything you've got, mate, because you're rich. You Give it all away. That will sort your covetous nature out. And this, this, not saying everyone has to do it, but that's what he had to do. And um, he walked away, couldn't handle it. And uh, that's when, when Jesus said about, you know, sort of riches and, and that it's easier for to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And um, But nevertheless, he says, nothing is impossible with God. So it's not saying that riches do bar you from becoming a Christian, but they're dangerous. They're dangerous. And, uh, you know, you can get in the kingdom, and take riches with you, but it's not easy. And for many people, they have to lose them first, as it were. Um, and then Jesus tells the disciples, you know, about the rewards that there'll be for, for people who leave, um, you know, who, who lose houses and family in order to follow him. Because for many people, to follow the Lord lands, far from riches lands them up in poverty, sometimes even their own families rejecting them. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, don't worry, there'll be rewards for you, not, not just in heaven, but in this life as well. And then Jesus tells the disciples that, um, that in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, when Jesus is reigning on the earth, that they will rule over Israel um, on, on 12 thrones. And so when the kingdom eventually comes, then the apostles will actually, the 12, 
will actually be ruling over Israel uh, during the thousand year reign of Jesus. Right, chapter 20, and uh, we have the uh, parable of the the workers in the vineyard. Remember, you know, the bloke, he goes down to the market early in the morning and there's some blokes there and he takes them away and they start working. He goes back later on, there's more people there, he takes them back and right up to the last minute. And of course, at the end of the day, he pays the people who only worked an hour the same as the people who worked eight, eight hours. And they say, that's not fair. And he said, well, it's my money. And I mean, I didn't have to employ you. And of course, it's, uh, it's a picture there of the generosity of grace. And Jesus said, look, the last will be first. And of course, remember that the you know the Gentiles actually got got into the kingdom of God before Israel did, and that the thing is with grace because it's undeserved kindness. If God shows grace to one person but not to another, you can't fault him because he doesn't have to show grace to anybody. And uh, you know, so he's saying, look, you know, the fact that when push came to shove, he poured his grace out on the Gentiles rather than Israel. Israel can't complain, you know, about that because it's God's grace, and they rejected him anyway. Um, you know, but the point is that you can't ever, I mean, like if I'm saved, how could I, for instance, ever see God um, save someone and think, oh no, I think they're too sinful to be saved? I mean, it's daft. Grace just wants to bless everyone um, in any way that it can. And uh, then again, he, um, he predicts his death and that he's going to be raised from the dead um, on, on the third day. Now, at this point, he leaves Perea. Now, he goes back to Judea, the south of Israel, where Jerusalem is the capital. And uh, the rest of his ministry now is, is in Judea in the south. Um, Matthew tells us of a, an, an occasion where James and John, their mum, comes to um, ask Jesus and ask if her sons can have a special place um, in the kingdom of God, you know, so she wanted her sons to be number one and uh, Jesus said look, you know um, The Gentiles like to lord it over people, you know, I'm more important than you. I'm, I've got more authority than you But he's saying no look in in the kingdom of God It's not a question of who's the greatest. He says the greatest is the servant and that's when he says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so it's not a question of you know wanting your sons to have some big important role in the kingdom of God. It says tell, tell your sons to be servants. That that's how they'll be great in the kingdom. Um, then we, we we have the story of um, two blind men uh, who were healed by Jesus. Um, and um, Matthew tells us that this miracle occurs when Jesus and the disciples were leaving Jericho. Um, a good, one of these interesting so-called contradictions in the Bible because in the Gospel of Luke, Luke puts the same miracle um, when Jesus is approaching Jericho. Now that's a kind of a contradiction, isn't it? You know, how, how could Jesus have healed them leaving Jericho and being on his way to Jericho at the same time? And it's only modern archaeology that has discovered that at the time of Jesus there were two Jerichos. The old Jericho was being recited. So they, they moved Jericho a few miles away and rebuilt it. But at the time of Jesus, the old Jericho still had people living in it. The new Jericho had people moving in and the two were in transition. And at the point of that miracle, Jesus was leaving one Jericho and he was going to the other. So in Jesus' day, there were actually two Jerichos. It was part of the building program that Herod had been working on um, in the land for absolutely years. So what appeared to be a contradiction, modern archaeology showed us wasn't. 
Now in chapter 21, we now come to the last week. 21 onwards, the last seven days of Jesus's, um, well, you know, sort of like leading up to Jesus's death. And uh, Jesus comes to a place called Bethphage, which is on the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and he goes there on the way to Jerusalem. And um, he, he sends two disciples to the next village to, to get a donkey and, and, uh, and her, her cult. And what Jesus does once they've got this um, is, is that you get the, the triumphal entry into um, Jerusalem, what, what became, you know, sort of people say Palm, palm Sunday. And all the people put their cloaks down and branches and wave the palm trees and, and, and that. And uh, as, as Jesus rode in on the colt, which was the baby donkey, and the mother donkey rode, you know, came behind. And of course, this fulfilled Zechariah nine nine that your king will come to you riding um, on on a donkey. And of course, in the ancient world, um, if a king came to declare war, he came on a horse. And at the second coming, Jesus comes on a white horse to declare war on the world. But when a king came in peace, he'd ride on a colt. And, and this was still Jesus pleading with Israel to believe in him, to accept him. And, um, you know, and the people cry out, you know, Hosanna to the son of David, and they call him the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But of course, the tragedy is that, that, that a few days later they're baying for his blood. Jesus then goes to the temple, and this is when he drives out the money changers. He literally throws them out physically, overturns the table. The reason being, not that there were money changers in the temple, it was that the the temple had its own money system and to go in there you had to exchange your money they were like money changers um, but the point was they they'd have extortionate rates of exchange and they were making an absolute fortune out of it and and you know and Jesus hated that they were exploiting worship and uh, that was not Jesus's bag at all and he literally drove them out now when we come on to John's gospel we'll see that Jesus actually had done that three years earlier in John's Gospel, in fact, is one of the first things Jesus did <laughs> in his ministry. But uh, Matthew just tells us about the second time. So Jesus claims the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. That point, doesn't it? He started as he planned to finish. Um, then he healed some blind people and, and, and some lame people. Uh, the Pharisees get indignant because the children are, are praising him, and even the children are saying, "Oh, Hosanna to you know the Son of David." And you know, and Jesus uh, says, "No, look, this is a fulfilment of Psalm." Uh, 8 verse 2 which says from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise and Jesus said no don't try and shut the children up they're fulfilling prophecy I am God they are praising me that's what the Old Testament says and um, <coughs> and then he, he, he went to, to spend the night and, and he slept that night um, in Bethany um, and that that's just two miles away on the slopes of the Mount of Olives so Bethany was just outside Jerusalem on, 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 on the slope of the Mount of Olives and that's where Gethsemane was as well. Gethsemane was a garden right as you go up uh, on the Mount of Olives. Um, the next morning he goes back to Jerusalem and this was when he curses the fig tree that had no fruit on it and it withered immediately and the disciples were amazed and Jesus said look you know if, if you faith you have faith and don't doubt you say to this you know sort of right mountain throw itself into the sea and he says if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer and of course the you know the thing about the fig tree is that in the Old Testament also that Israel was likened to a fig tree and Israel is cursed now because it's rejected Jesus um, then he, he goes to the temple courts and um, and the chief priests and the elders, they ask him by what authority he does all these things. They say, who, who are you to do this? 
And, um, and the way Jesus replies to them, he says, right, okay, you answer me this question, then I'll answer your one. Was John's baptism from heaven or men? Now, the point is, the Pharisees knew full well that the common people all believed that John was a prophet, and John had testified to Jesus. So, if they said John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus would have said, well, so why don't you believe in me? Because that's what John said. But if they say, no, we think John's baptism was just from men, he wasn't of God, the people would have turned on them. And so they said, we have no answer. And Jesus said, well, I have no answer for your question then. And it's just one of the times when Jesus sent them packing. Because their questions and inquiries were dishonest. And so Jesus just turned it back on them, outwitted them um, all, all the time. Uh, then, then Jesus tells the parable of the two sons. And you remember a bloke, he owned a vineyard, and he had two sons. He says, go and work in the vineyard. Now the first one said, yes, Dad, I will, and didn't. The second son said, no, Dad, I won't, but later on changed his mind and did. And so you've got a picture of Israel. Israel should have got into the kingdom, but didn't. The Gentiles are going to. And, uh, and Jesus said to them that, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were the people that the Jews considered to be unclean. He says they get into the kingdom ahead of others. Uh, he says because they believe John the Baptist. Um, you know, and, and so they get into the kingdom before you. And, um, you know, because the Pharisees wouldn't. And yet the common people, the sinners, were recognising who Jesus was. And, um, and then Jesus tells another parable, uh, again about a vineyard, and uh, about this bloke, he owned a vineyard, and he left servants in charge of it and uh, after a while he um, sent you know a, a servant to go and find out what's happening in the vineyard and the people working in the vineyard killed his servant sent a few others killed the servants eventually the owner of the vineyard sent his own son and they killed his own son and so the owner of the vineyard said right okay I'm going to destroy the workers I'm going to kill the workers and I'm going to hand the vineyard over to others and of course by this parable Jesus was saying Israel's history was God sent prophets, they killed them, they rejected them. Eventually God sent his own son and they rejected and killed him. The result is that God is going to destroy the workers in the vineyard, Israel, and that happened in AD 70 when Rome marched in and the vineyard is going to be given to us, to Gentiles, the Gentile church. And, uh, and then he quotes Psalm 118 about the stone that the builders rejected, uh, you know, will become the cornerstone. And he says quite blatantly, the kingdom will be taken from you, from Israel, and will be given uh, to the Gentiles. And uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they knew that he was talking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the people, because at this point all the people were saying he is a prophet. So more and more the Pharisees and the, the, the chief priests wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because of the people. They wanted to arrest him and stick him up. Now in chapter 22, Jesus um, tells the parable of the wedding banquet. And, uh, you know, like the bloke having a wedding and he's sent out. And all the people he invited were too busy to come. And so what he did is he sent, his, he says, oh, bring all the people, all the beggars, all the lame off the street. They'll come. And of course, again, it's the picture. God invited Israel into his kingdom. Israel would not come. They were too busy with their own affairs. And so he said, right, okay, so instead, what am I going to do? Go out in the highways and bring the Gentiles in. All now, Jesus is teaching that Israel is going to be cut out of God's will and that the Gentiles are going to be grafted in in their place. Israel will be back in the future. 
Israel's future is going to happen still, but for the time being, the Gentile church has replaced Israel because Israel rejected Jesus. And all this teaching that Jesus is giving um, is about this. And then he tells, you know, says that, um, you know, this wedding, that a man was found at the wedding without, um, you know, a wedding garment on. And so the, the ushers threw him out into outer darkness. And, uh, and Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And of course, the point being that he's saying that even even if a, 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 a Jew did manage to get into the kingdom just by virtue of being a Jew rather than faith, you know, faith in Jesus, the fact he didn't have faith would betray him, he'd be thrown out anyway. This is the whole point, Jesus saying, you don't get into the kingdom just because you're Israel. You get into the kingdom by believing in me. And Jesus was the person that Israel didn't want to believe in. And it's now that the Pharisees get together with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were Jews who supported Herod. The Pharisees hated Herod, but they knew that the Herodian Jews would support them against Jesus. So they get together with the Herodians. I mean, normally the Pharisees wouldn't even talk to the Herodians, but now they get together with the you know mutual enemies coming together, you know, to, because they've got someone that they both have got it in for. And uh, so they come together with the Herodians and together they come up, they ask Jesus about this, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And of course what they were trying to do, if Jesus has said yes, then uh, they could have said, oh Jesus supports Rome and that would have turned the people against him. But if Jesus has said no, then they could have gone to the Romans and said, oh Jesus is teaching, saying that you mustn't pay taxes to Rome. And then the Romans would have killed Jesus. So Jesus just got the coin, he says, whose head is it? And they say Caesar's. He says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But there's no answer to that. He, un you know, I mean, they just couldn't do anything with it. So they just sort of like walked away. Uh, then the Sadducees, try and trip him up. Now the Sadducees, another religious group in Israel, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They were like the Bishop of Durham. They didn't actually believe in the supernatural or anything. Um, they, they tried to trip him up. They say, look, seven brothers ended up marrying the same woman, all right? Because it's like, you know, in Israel, if, if a wife, if a husband died and, the wife, and, and, and her husband had, sorry, if the husband died, the brother, if he was available, would marry the woman to look after her and they were saying look what would happen if a, a woman actually got through seven brothers because each one kept dying in heaven whose wife would she be and Jesus said look there is no marriage in heaven and he said you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God he's saying all these pathetic attempts to trip me up you know and, and at every point he just you know knocks them them back completely and um, you know and he says look I, I'm the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of the living not of the dead and he says, you're, you know, you Sadducees, you're nuts. You say you don't believe in the afterlife. And he's saying, but, but you, you, you pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and you believe that God is the God of the living and not the dead. Well, that must mean Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still alive in the afterlife. So what are you talking about? And off go the Sadducees, thoroughly, you know, cornered it in, into a wall theologically, you know, into a corner. Um, the Pharisees come back and, and, and try again now on the, the greatest commandment and uh, you know they, they, they say what's, what's the greatest commandment and Jesus says well love the Lord your God with blah 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 and love your neighbour as yourself so you know I mean I don't you know and Jesus said that sums up the law and the prophets and before they have a chance to move on to whatever it was that they were going to try and make of that Jesus um, addresses them and he says look whose son is the Christ all right and he's challenging, what, what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? And, um, 
and they say, well, Christ is the son of David, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. That, that's the answer, and Jesus says yes. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. When King David just starts this psalm, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, what, what Jesus says is, look, if, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And what you've got here is that in a psalm of David, you've clearly got the fact that when Jesus said, the Lord said to my Lord, David is talking about at least two persons in the Godhead. The Lord said to my Lord, so God person one, God person two, the Lord said to my Lord. And of course the point is that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And they were trying to say, it's blasphemy for a man to say that he's God. And of course the point is, if that man isn't God, then it would be blasphemy, but Jesus was God. But the Jews should have had no problem with the idea of God becoming a man, because in their own Psalms was the idea that there were at least two persons in the Godhead. Now from the teaching of Jesus, we have it defined that there were three, in fact, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is doing there is that he's proving his own pre-existence to the Pharisees on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. And, uh, you know, so therefore, after this, they can't just, you know, sort of like get away with saying you're claiming to be God, therefore that's a blasphemy. Because the point is Jesus all the time was saying, I am a man, but I am God as well, therefore it's not blasphemy, and all the miracles I'm working are proving that I'm God. And so Jesus is proving from the Psalms there that the Godhead uh, was not just one person in the Godhead, uh, but in fact a trinity, and he was the second person of the trinity. And after this it says that no one dared ask him any more questions. I mean the Pharisee, it was too high a price to go and ask Jesus questions, because all the time it was them who were made to look stupid. Um, so what happens now um, is that Jesus turns on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And, um, and you know in the Sermon on the Mount you get the Beatitudes, you get Jesus' blessed are, and he goes through all the things that are blessed. Um, what, what Jesus does now is, is he kind of comes up with a woe against the Pharisees. So rather than blessed are, this is woe to the Pharisees, and he lists all the reasons. And, um, and, and of course, what he's trying, he says to the crowd, do what they say, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they preach. Um, and he says they love the honour and greetings in the marketplace. And, um, you know, but, but, but he says it, 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 it's all a sham. And, and, and he says, beware, you know, of, of them. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And of course, vice versa, vice versa, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But all the time, the Pharisees, they exalted themselves. You know, big, important religious men. And Jesus was saying they're absolute hypocrites. And then he, he comes out with seven woes against them. And I'll just list them. And these are Jesus's seven complaints against the Pharisees. Number one, they shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. They won't go in and they won't let others go in. Two, they travel land or sea to make one convert and then make him twice as fit for the lake of fire as they are. Three, they swear, they say that to swear by the temple is nothing. So if you, if you swear by the temple, that you're not bound to it, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, your oath is binding. 
Also, if you swear by the altar, that's not binding. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, that's binding. Strange teaching. But of course, it's their obsession with money. They, they, money bound them more than God did. And, and Jesus said, that's another reason why woe to you. And then number four, he says, you, you tithe herbs. And, uh, you know, even down to, there they were, that tenth of a herb. Yeah. And he says, but uh, you neglect the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he says, blind guides. He says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Number five, he says, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So you've got the cup, lovely and clean. You look inside and it's full of mildew and gunge. That's what they were like. He builds on that. Number six, whitewashed tombs. Lovely white tombstones, but of course dead bodies underneath, full of death and putridness. And then lastly, he says, look, you, you, you build the tombs to the past prophets, all the ones that your forefathers murdered, and you build tombs to one of the prophets. He says, whilst you're shedding the blood of the current prophets nowadays. So he says, they're honouring the prophets that their forefathers murdered, while they are murdering the prophets that God is sending them at that precise moment. And Jesus said that a judgment is going to come on them and that generation of Jews for the blood of, 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 of the righteous from Abel to Zechariah. So he says a judgment is coming on you and the judgment is going to be on the shedding of innocent blood from Abel to Zechariah. Now, the thing about that, Abel was the first murder in Genesis. Abel was the first person who was murdered, and Abel was a believer. He was a prophet. Zechariah, not the prophet Zechariah, but a priest called Zechariah, uh, was murdered, and you find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Now, in the Jewish Bible, which is the same as ours, but they arrange the books differently. In, that, in the Jewish Bible, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Bible. Zechariah was the last man to be murdered, and he was a prophet as well in the Jewish Bible. Abel the first, and Zechariah the last. And what Jesus is saying, remember, they're about to kill him, the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying, the sin that they're about to commit in killing the Messiah is worse than all the murders of the prophets throughout Old Testament history put together. And so the judgment that is going to come on them will be as if it's judgment for every murder of prophets in the Old Testament. And it's then that Jesus cries out and how he longed to gather Jerusalem and her children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. And he says, but you weren't willing. You weren't willing. That's what he wanted, but Israel kept rejected him. And he said that they would be left desolate. And of course in AD 70, Rome marched in and destroyed the land. And that's when he said that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is why the second coming is going to be when Israel prays for it. When Israel believes in Jesus at long last, that's when the second coming will be, because they will pray that Jesus will come, and then he will come in answer to Israel's prayer. They wouldn't believe in this time, but in the future, a day is going to come when they will believe him. And it will be on their prayer that the second coming happens. Now in chapter 24, um, Jesus gives... A lot of teaching about the end of the age and about the great tribulation, the second coming. So after the rapture of the church, after Jesus comes and takes the church away back to heaven, then the nation of Israel, as it were, is going to be grafted back in. And the prophetic clock that stopped ticking for Israel 
2,000 years ago will start ticking again, right? The church will be in heaven with Jesus. And, uh, but that's when you get the great tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist. And it's his persecution of Israel that drives them to their knees and makes them believe in Jesus and to cry out for his coming. And, um, and, and Jesus tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed and that what, not one stone will be left on another. That happened in, in, in AD 70. And then he goes on, the disciples ask him about the end of the age, the judgment of the nations and ultimate restoration of Israel. And Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, which was the prophecy of Daniel, talking about the coming Antichrist. And, um, you know, and he tells, you know, tells the disciples now that he's talking about the great tribulation and the second coming. And, um, and he gives instructions that when that happens and when Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist, uh, then the believers in Jerusalem to flee and to escape. And of course, also um, in, in Daniel, uh, Daniel prophesied the safe areas where the believing Jews at that point um, in the future can go to, and it was Moab, Eden, and Ammon. Those three places will be safe from the Antichrist. And then, Jesus says, then there'll be the second coming. Then you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And uh, he, he tells them how that there's going to be the angelic separation of believers from unbelievers. We saw that last time, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and uh, the parable of the, the good and the bad fish. And... Um, that the, the day and the hour when this is going to happen is completely unknown. We know it happens seven years after the rapture, but we don't know when the rapture is. So no one knows in advance the day or the hour, um, and it's going to be like Noah and the flood, in the sense that when it happens, it will come upon an unsuspecting world. And, um, and he says that there'll be two, two men in a field, one will be taken. There'll be two women grinding, and one will be taken. And of course, you know, it's the point that at, 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 at the end of the Great Tribulation, when Jesus comes again, there'll be the separation of believer from unbelievers, and the believers will be killed, and uh, sorry, the unbelievers will be killed, and the believers will go through and repopulate the earth uh, during the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And he says, be ready like a servant waiting for his master to return, because you don't know when he's going to come back, so be a good servant, be ready all the time. And uh, then in chapter 25, he, he tells the parables about the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming. And this is all to do with Israel, because, of course, after the rapture of the church, this is when Israel is grafted back in, and, and when Israel is about to, at long last, believe on, on, on Jesus. And uh, he, he, he gives the, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, and some had, you know, sort of um, like oil in their lamps, and some didn't. And of course, the point is that the, the foolish virgins with no oil in their lamps, because of course the oil is the Holy Spirit, they're the Jews in the Great Tribulation who don't believe, and the wise virgins are the, the Jews who do believe. And remember, they're all waiting for Messiah because. All Jews are waiting for Messiah to come, but the wise ones are the ones who have realised that Messiah was Jesus. So they're waiting for the right Messiah to come. And, and of course the point is that the ones without oil, the wicks burn for a little bit just, just, just because they're made of cloth, but without the oil to feed them the wicks go out. And so they, they can't, you know, when, when Messiah comes again, uh, they're left out because they, they've got no oil in their lamp. They can't see where they're going. They're, they're shut out of the wedding feast. And so Jesus is saying that when he does come, there'll be 
Jews who believe in him and Jews who won't believe in him. And it's the Jews who do believe in him um, who, who will go through and, 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 and sort of like live during the thousand years when Jesus is reigning on the earth. And then there's the parable of the talents. Uh, like different people given you know sort of like a varying number of talents and you know the one with 10 made 20 and blah 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 but there was one servant he only had one talent he buried it into the ground and it, it didn't even gain any interest at all and uh you know and so jesus said that you know the what little he had was taken away and he was you know sort of like thrown out because it was a picture of faith and he didn't have any faith he wouldn't believe in jesus and uh, that's when Jesus says that if you're faithful in small things, you'll be put in charge in much. So we see there that faithfulness to Jesus now is the basis for future reward in that day when Jesus is ruling on the earth. And then you get the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The, sh the, the sheep, you know, being the believing Jews and goats being the... Uh, sorry, this is the judgment on the Gentiles, uh, the sheep being the believers and the goats being the unbelievers. And the basis of the judgment is that the Gentiles in the Great Tribulation who believe in Jesus, they'll be the ones who help the Jews because the Jews have been persecuted by the Antichrist. And uh, so there you have the judgment on believer, on the Gentiles and, and those who believe are saved and, and those who don't believe... Um, are killed at the second coming and um, you know so so here you've got all the various judgments we've, we've done them all in much greater detail um, in in the salvation series but that that's the, the teaching that Jesus is um, giving in chapter 25 chapter 26 Jesus tells his disciples that uh, his death is imminent any time and the plot to kill him is put into motion by Caiaphas the high priest so now the wheels start to turn um, a woman anoints Jesus with an uh, expensive perfume. Uh, he's in the house of Simon the leper um, in Bethany. The disciples say it could have been sold and given to the poor, but Jesus said, no, she's anointing me for burial, and said what she's done will be remembered all over the world. And of course it was, because it's in the Bible. And uh, so there, they were just seeing that, well, this could be sold, got money for, and give it to the poor. Jesus is saying, no, 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 she's doing this um, you know, to anoint me for burial, and, and, and that is more important. And at that point, Judas agrees to betray Jesus to the priest for 30 pieces of silver. So now Judas goes to the priest and he says, right, here's, here's the deal. Um, Jesus sends the disciples off to arrange the room for the Passover meal, and um, or the Last Supper, as it's called, and um, while they're eating it, he reveals that he knows that Judas is going to betray him. Um, he gives the teaching about the, the wine being the blood of the New Testament and the, you know, the food being his body that was broken. And this was when Jesus was instituting the love feast and saying, you know, this was Israel's Passover meal, which celebrated them coming out of Egypt, being set free from Egypt, a picture of the world. Well, we're saved. We've been set free from the world. And uh, so this is the love feast that the church has on Sundays. We share a meal together. And, um, and it ended with Jesus drinking a glass of wine. And he says, I, I will not drink again until I drink with you in my Father's kingdom. And uh, so what he's saying there is the next time that I will physically sit and eat and drink with you will be after the second coming when the thousand-year reign of Jesus kicks off and there's the the biggest party in history and we'll all be at this massive the marriage supper of the lamb with jesus himself and so jesus is saying right i'll drink wine again when that happens when that time comes 
and um, then he goes to the Mount of Olives with them um, he tells them that they're going to desert him which which was the fulfillment of Zechariah 13 Peter says he won't he says Lord I'll never desert you I'll die for you and Jesus said no no you won't he says in fact Peter you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning and um, you know, Peter oh no Lord I'd never do that that's what Jesus said um, they go on to Gethsemane this is like the e evening now they go on to Gethsemane it's on the Mount of Olives it means oil press that's that's the name of the the, the garden there that's what it's called Gethsemane oil press he takes Peter James and John to be with him and this was when Jesus was, was saying to his father take take this cup away from me I don't want to I don't want to die I don't want to have to do it and he says but not my will but yours be done and, and Jesus surrendering to, to, to the worst death in history because it was the death of the Son of God himself and um, and the disciples fall asleep and Jesus he says look you know this is you know Peter James and John he says look can't, can't you watch from me for one hour he was lonely he wanted them to be with him and he says look the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak so they're awake now he goes off and he prays again and they fall asleep again and when Jesus has ended this struggle in Gethsemane as he surrenders to the cross he, he returns to the other disciples and they were all fast asleep as well. And you see that the, the Jesus was totally alone because when it comes to dealing with the sin of the world, God alone does that. We, we can't help, the disciples couldn't help. We are the sinners he came to save. Um, and then Judas turns up with the armed mob, the crowd, and uh, does the betrayer's kiss bit. Um, the high priest's servant gets his ear cut off here. Uh, from the other Gospels we know that his name was Malchus, that it was Peter who cut his ear off and uh, Jesus healed him and, and put his ear back on for him. And uh, so the disciples are initially, it's fight to protect Jesus. And Jesus tells the disciples that, that he could call on 12 legions of angels if he wanted to. Jesus is surrendering to this death. He doesn't need rescuing from it. Jesus could click his fingers and, and, and everything would change. He was God himself, but he was surrendering to it. He says, I don't need your help to protect me from this. I've got 12 legions of angels waiting to protect me from it. I'm surrendering to it. And then he, he turns to these people who have come to arrest him. He says, look, I've been teaching openly in the temple all the time. Why, why are you coming, you know, at night as if I'm some subversive, you know, sort of like rebel or something? But he says, nevertheless, it, it fulfills the scriptures. And then the disciples flee. Jesus is taken to Caiaphas's house, Caiaphas, the chief priest, and he appears before the Sanhedrin. Peter follows at a distance and remains in the courtyard. The trial goes on through the night. Uh, false witnesses are brought against Jesus, but no charges are sustained. Eventually, two false witnesses said that he, Jesus had taught that he destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days whereas Jesus had actually taught he was talking about his body the temple so this was twisting it all right uh, hardly a proper charge Jesus refuses to speak throughout all this but the high priest Caiaphas charges him under oath if he was the Christ the son of God and Jesus affirmed it he says yes I am and he says you'll see the right hand the, the son of man sitting on the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven which is a direct reference to Daniel Jesus is saying yes I'm God it's exactly who I am. I am the Messiah. I am God become man. Caiaphas tears his clothes and then charges him with blasphemy and says that he should die. And so they sentence him to death. It's a false charge. 
if Jesus hadn't have been God, become a man, it would have been a, a okay charge. But Jesus was God become man. It is not blasphemy when God, who's become a man, says that he's God become man. And God has only ever become one man, Jesus. It wasn't blasphemy, because Jesus was telling the truth. And then they spat on him, and they beat him up, blindfolded him and said, prophesy who's punching you, who's hitting you. At this point, Peter, in the courtyard, has his opportunity to stand up for Jesus. The three people say, oh, you're with Jesus. Peter denied him three times. And on the third time, as he denied him, he heard the cock crow. It was dawn. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. In chapter 27, so now this is the next day, this is dawn the next day, Jesus is taken to Pilate, the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Roman governor. Judas gives the money back and hangs himself, realises what he's done. Um, the priests, with this, they, 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 they use it to buy a field to bury foreigners in, because it was blood money, they couldn't put it back in the temple treasury, so it was unclean money. So they, they, they built um, you know, this, this field to bury Gentiles in, they called it Akeldama, the field of blood. And uh, of course this fulfilled the prophecy in Jeremiah 19, um, you know, sort of about the 30 pieces of silver in the potter's field, so a direct um, fulfilment of that prophecy. Uh, so Jesus is now before Pilate. Pilate wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus wouldn't answer him. Um, and we learn that Pilate's wife had, had, had had a strange dream the night before and God had spoken to her and warned her, don't have anything to do with this man. And uh, so she tries to convince Pilate, no, let him go. Let him go. Don't, don't mess with him. And, and Pilate tried to get Jesus released. This thing with Barabbas. Pilate had a custom, he could let one prisoner go um, on Passover day, one prisoner go, who the Jews you know, chose. But they chose Brabus, a terrorist, um, an evil man. And, and so he tried to get Jesus free, but he couldn't. And that was when he washed his blood, he washed his hands, and he says, I'm you know, sort of like free of, of Jesus' blood. And the, the people say, let his blood be on us and our children. And of course that's been the the story of Israel ever since, because God said, yes, his blood will be on you and your, your children. Pilate releases Barabbas, and he has Jesus flogged and uh, handed over to be crucified. Now, when we come to see Luke's Gospel, we'll see that mixed in there was um, a trip to Herod, a trial before Herod. Matthew doesn't record that because, you know, sort of like, you know, obviously not every gospel can record everything, but when we do Luke, we'll see missing pictures, you know, missing bits of uh, the picture here. Uh, the soldiers mock Jesus, they, the scarlet robe, the crown of thorns, and they put a staff in his right hand and they kneel down and worship him like king of the Jews, mocking him. Again, they, they spit on him and he gets beaten again with the staff. Um, then they, they force Simon of Cyrene, who's passing by, to carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. It's called the Place of the Skull. That's where the crucifixion took place. And pla if you think of the Place of the Skull, how significant the head of the church, the head of the church, died on the Place of the Skull. See, God was in every detail, emphasising that this was his son. Um, Pilate put a sign over the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, when, when the Romans crucified people, they put a sign on the top of the cross, and it, it, it had on it the crime they were being you know, killed for. 
But Pilate had no, Jesus had committed no crime, so he put up there, King of the Jews. What, what else could he put up there? There was no crime, because it was a mockery. It was put up charges, trumped up completely. And so Jesus was crucified between two thieves. There was him and two thieves. And from the other Gospels, we know that one of them became a Christian. One of them got saved. Now the crowds mock him and taunt him. They say, save yourself. These are the crowds who three, three days earlier, or days earlier, he's a prophet from Galilee, Hosanna to the son of David. Fickleness. This is why faith, if it doesn't produce works, it's dead. Absolutely dead. These are the same people praising him up as the Messiah a few days earlier. Now they're saying, kill him, crucify him. And now they're mocking him. They say, oh, save yourself. And then <laughs> there was darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour. Now that's noon to 3 p.m., all right? And uh, so Jesus was on the cross from like th through this time period and there was pitch black. And uh, at the end of the ninth hour, um, at the end of this darkness, um, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The, the people say that he was calling for Elijah and they waited to see if Elijah was going to come. In the Hebrew, it's Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. So they thought, Eloi, Elijah, they, you know. And, um, and then Jesus gives out a loud cry and he gave up his spirit and died. And as we do the other Gospels, we'll see the other things that Jesus said on the cross and we'll see his time on the cross unfolding. And uh, so now Jesus dies and there was an earthquake. And the curtain in the temple, which divided the people, for, you know, like the, where the plebs could go and the priests could go, like the holy place, this curtain that symbolised man's separation from God because of sin, um, the temple was torn in two, but from top to bottom. Uh, sorry, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God's hands reached down. It wasn't from the bottom up, it was ripped it. Because the moment that Jesus died, sin was dealt with and the way was open for us to be saved. So now that curtain in the temple, the thing that divides us from God, it's gone. It's gone because Jesus took the barrier of sin away. And instead of the barrier, he stands there and he said, I am the door. So there's not an impassable barrier there anymore. Through faith in Jesus, you walk through and you're saved. Believe on Jesus. And, um, and as this earthquake happened, some believers who had recently died and been buried actually were raised from the dead. They came out of their tombs and went into... Jerusalem and appeared to people and um, and the centurion the Roman centurion who was organizing this execution said surely he was the son of God which, which must be the understatement of you know I mean what what a testimony as Jesus dies there's pitch black now that's God's control over the elements he can darken the sun if he wants there's an earthquake. It's God's control over the earth. So we've got sky, sun, earth. God's control over that. The temple, the curtain was ripped in two, quite miraculously. There's God's control over Israel's religious affairs. And uh, people who had died are raised from the dead and go in Jerusalem and start preaching the gospel. Yet still Israel would not believe. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, now gets uh, Pilate's permission to bury Jesus in his own tomb, which he did, and rolls the stone across the entrance. Um, and the, the tomb is secured by Roman soldiers. 
on the request of the chief priest. They asked Pilate, pose the guard, because we don't want the disciples to try and steal the body and then to say that he's been raised from the dead. And as we carry on through this, doing the other Gospels, eventually we're going to put together a picture of everything that happened in the last week of Jesus' life and everything that happened here leading up to the resurrection. She'll get a full chronological picture. I'll fill in all the gaps and put all the Gospels together on that. And, um, and then in chapter 28, and uh, Matthew ends fairly abruptly, um, but now it's the Sunday morning, morning of the third day. Two of the women followers go to his tomb you know, with spices and blah, blah, blah. They get to the tomb, there's an earthquake and an angel appears. Uh, the guards who are guarding, you know, become like dead men. I mean, sheer fright and fall backwards and don't know what to do. The angel shows the women the empty tomb and tells them to go and tell the disciples that the tomb is empty, the body's gone. On their way to go and tell the disciples that an angel has appeared and told them that the tomb is empty, they meet Jesus. And they just fall at his feet. Jesus, during this, the period of this few hours, Jesus revealed himself to various people. And again, we'll put it all together uh, and we'll build up a picture of what happened in these hours. But this is their turn. They meet Jesus. They just fall at his feet. They hug his feet. And uh, he tells them to tell his brothers to go to, you know, to, go to Galilee and meet him. So he says, go now, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Now that's up north where Jesus started his ministry or you know, where he'd spent so much time. Um, then the, the guards from the tomb go back and report to the chief priests and tell them what happened. Well, the chief priests, they, as they, get, they, they know that Jesus is raised from the dead, but still they don't believe. So what they say is, go, go back, tell everyone. They bribed them and they said, tell everyone that you fell asleep and um, that the disciples stole the body. Now, and they said, we'll, we'll keep you out of trouble with Pilate. Because under Roman law, if a soldier, if they failed in a task, I mean, if a prisoner got loose or whatever, they, or, or if a guard was asleep on duty, they were summarily executed. So the chief priests say, look, we'll square it with Pilate, all right, no problem. We'll tell them it's not your fault. After all, what can you do against an angel? So we'll, we'll, we'll sort it with Pilate, but here's money. You tell people that the disciples stole the body. This is how far the chief priests and the Pharisees would go, you know, to deceive people and to get their own way. And, uh, and then Mark, uh, Matthew finishes his gospel simply with now Jesus is, is together with the 11 disciples in Galilee. This is up by the lake. Um, as we go through the other Gospels, we'll see other meetings that Jesus had with various people through this as we're going to see what is a 40-day period. And, uh, but here, Jesus simply meets with the 11 and he gives them what has been, come to be called the Great Commission when he tells them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, um, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and telling them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what's interesting there is that Jesus says, make disciples, tell them to observe what I have commanded you. So when you make new disciples, what are they supposed to be observing? They're supposed to be observing God working in your life. See? Jesus doesn't just want us to tell people the gospel, they've got to be able to observe the gospel 
and to see how different we are because we follow Jesus. That is the basis on which they will become disciples. And he didn't just say get converts, it's make disciples. And then he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which of course he is. Matthew ends there. Obviously from the other Gospels we know that that is when Jesus ascended back into heaven, but we'll see that when we move on to the other Gospels. So we'll call it a day there on Matthew.